you need to do occasionally some creative destruction, not just in the private sector, right? But in our public life uh, and start over again and, and, and do something new, something, uh, something big. I think that's one thing that younger generations really miss, thinking big about our future again. Why can't we do that? Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with historian and demographer Neil Howe. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Neil, in which he explains why the weight of history strongly suggests that we're headed into a decade-plus period of economic and social disruption, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Neil and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. And don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If everyone watching right now takes these two simple steps, it really does help this channel reach a lot more people. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Neil Howe. This is such an important um, question that so many of the viewers have been asking themselves of late, which is... Um, are we going to see in this fourth turning kind of will reality re-express itself? And, and it certainly may amongst things like, you know, physical resource limitations and stuff like that, because you can't necessarily print those up overnight. Um, but will sort of economically here, will will reality re-express itself and all those old fundamentals of investing and whatnot begin to matter again? Yes. Or have we crossed a Rubicon where the Fed is just going to be intervening in any and all cases going forward? And it's not, we're not going to return to that because they require very different investing strategies. Right. Well, valuation, you know, ultimately always matters. <laughs> you can't banish the concept of valuation. But I would argue that it's now, because of the regime change, operating on a big delay and it's operating indirectly, right? We have a new regime it still has to operate. There will always be something called valuation, right? But it's gonna operate differently now. And I think what's happening is, is that uh, in response to this, we're seeing, I think what's clearly with this, you know, huge monetary stimulus, I mean, the, the combination of the fact of this enormous borrowing, which is gonna continue, right, through the, through the 2020s, um, and the Fed flattening of the yield curve, which is further inflating the demand for equities because it's just encouraging everyone to borrow. I mean, you see mergers and acquisitions going to record levels, buybacks now. We may be a record buyback in the third quarter. Uh, amazing. You know, everyone is because here's the new policy is it doesn't matter what you buy after having borrowed. That's a slam dunk. You can borrow anything now and invest the money in anything and you'll be a winner. I mean, right? I mean we have now uh, long-term treasury yields, which are not only several percentage points below the CPI or the PCE, but 90 basis points below even what bondholders themselves expect long-term inflation to be. And, Isn't and that we're crazy? Back. Yeah, we've, so, we've, so got, we've got junk, junk bond yields below the CPI. Exactly, exactly. You, you will, exactly. You know, high risk end. So what that means is that the only way this can be rectified ultimately going down the road, and it will, you know, it all depends on the speed at which this happens, depends a little bit on Congress. 
but it will be inflation and inflation expectations. So I, I, I really do believe that this is how it's going to play out. Ultimately, of course, inflation, you have to you remember, particularly when inflation expectations begins to accelerate, puts an end to everything, right? The Fed has to change course. And even the MMT theorists agree. Yeah, once you get, you know, accelerating inflation, you have to stop the whole credit creation factory, right? So the Fed is going to have to start, you know, reversing quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. It's going to have to then start raising the front end. And then, of course, the back end will rise as, 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 as bond yields rise. But, but, but then what's going to happen is that's going to not only will you have a higher discount rate to pull down the valuations of equities, but also it will tend to deflate and make collapse all the debt pyramids which underlie a lot of the investing in equities, right? So all those buybacks, all those borrow to invest schemes that everyone has, all that's going to be, you know, going, right? Particularly at the high risk, starting at the high risk end, right? And then finally, and this is the killer. This is what I think people don't realize. Fiscal policy will be unable to neutralize. And I think that's what people don't understand. Now, you remember back in... Um, Back the last time this happened with Volcker, right? Volcker suddenly said, we got to get rid of inflation. We're going to just stop the growth in the money supply. I'm going to let the, you know, well, he let it. That's when it reached its record, right? 15.8%. Right. That's because he wasn't going to accommodate this. And what was the only way to present a real disaster to the economy? Reagan ran huge deficits, right? You remember, that was the policy. Monetary tightening, fiscal easing. This is what scares me, Adam, is that in this coming era, once you get those expectations of yields going way up, particularly in the out years, Congress won't be able to do that. You know why? Because never before in history have the uh, deficit projections depended so critically on low interest rate assumptions. I, I go over every year, I go over the, the CBO's long-term budget projections, right? And they're, they're now projecting that nominal yields will be beneath nominal GDP growth all the way until 2038. <laughs> Think about that. So this is how they get to borrow all that amount during the 2020s, early 2030s, without the GDP, you know, debt to GDP ratio growing, because they just assume that we're gonna have these extraordinarily low interest rates. Now, once that assumption changes, instead of rising from where it is now, you know, we're about what, 103, 104% of GDP in terms of publicly held federal debt. Instead of rising and make 150% or something that's already unsustainable, we'll be talking about 250, 300, 350 at that point. And by the way, at that point, we're gonna have runs on the dollar. Right. So in other words, everyone who holds federal debts can be thinking, are we ever going to get this back? <laughs> right. So you imagine all the sovereign wealth funds and all the central banks abroad. So they'll be running. So at that point, the, the, the federal government's going to have to say, no, we either have to raise taxes or cut benefits. This is not going to be any longer a game of, of handing out pleasures. It could be a game of allocating pain. That's, by the way, going to make the political struggle much more difficult. It's been very easy in the past two years to handle the blue and red conflict when all you're looking at is passing out different tax cuts or benefits, right, to groups. Wait until we have to do the reverse. 
All right. So this is the exact meat that I was hoping to get into with you here, Neil. And I hate the fact that we're coming up near the end of our time here. So we're going to have to have you back on at some point. Um, but uh, let me let me let me repeat back a few things you said, just so you can clarify them for viewers. Um, uh, you know, you you basically see uh, the Fed has changed its behavior. It's going to continue to try to you know, this, this monetary and fiscal largesse is going to continue uh, to the point where it begins to create so much inflation that inflation becomes too much of a problem and we have to start tightening the system. And it's that tightening uh, along with some of the constraints you mentioned that we have on our massive debts and whatnot that are not going to allow uh, financial, uh, sorry, uh, fiscal stimulus to, to do what it did in, in uh, periods past, where we're going to have essentially kind of a, a perfect storm. Um, and that storm is going to um, uh, it's going to bring prices down. Uh, it's going to probably force um, well, uh, benefit yeah. cuts. I, so I, w- w- I guess just the key question I'll let you go is, is all of this part of this current fourth turning that you're projecting? Well, first of all, I, I, I disagree a little bit with your description of the outcome. I actually, I think that even though we're going to have to tighten because we, we can't let inflation get out of control. I mean, obviously, the Fed is going to have to be with, instead of underneath price expectations, it has to go above it, right? And that's going to be the big revolution, right? But nonetheless, I do think that the Fed is going to accommodate as much inflation as it can while just making sure it doesn't accelerate. And I'll tell you why they will do that because inflation will actually bring a solution to two, three big problems, right? First of all, it will help the economy run hot, right? And that's what the Fed wants. That's what everyone wants. We want unemployment to be down the lowest possible number. So we're gonna let, you know, wage and price inflations go on, maybe go gradually go up to two, four, 3%, 4%, five, or even higher. And finally, maybe we'll put on price controls like we did during, the Korean War, particularly World War II. Um, we'll also do it because it brings down the debt to GDP ratio. That's right, it helps with the debt service. That's the way we've always done it in the past, right? Inflation is the miracle worker. Why do people eat inflation is a problem? It's the solution. And it does one more thing. It brings down the Gini coefficient. It helps solve inequality. And uh, remember, you know, inflation takes away from creditors, it gives to debtors. When you look at the huge growing equality of that whole Great Depression, World War II era, right, and particularly went through the American high, right, and huge uh, decrease in inequality in America. Most of it really didn't occur much during the 1930s, interestingly enough. It started right around 1940. And particularly in World War II and the Korean War and after that. Why? Financial repression plus inflation. The Treasury yield was stuck, right? The, the Fed and the, and the Treasury conspired to keep it stuck at no higher than about 2.25, 2.5 maybe at the highest. Inflation was racing into the double digits. And we had price controls. We don't, we don't know really what inflation was actually doing. But creditors were getting killed right? For 20 years. That was when inequality went down in America. That's when the middle class came back. And, and the, if you look at the Gini coefficient, it reached its all-time low in the late 70s. That was after stagflation, right? We killed creditors. We killed investors. And it was right around that, the late 70s, right? 
when we entered the new regime. And this is what I would just remind people of, that inflation, and by the way, I didn't ask, I didn't add one more benefit of inflation, right? About a third of all creditors to treasury debt are foreigners. They're sovereign wealth. Right, so we push the cost banks. onto them. Yeah, exactly. America first. I mean, have you heard of that? I mean, <laughs> come on, this works. And, you know, they'll have no choice to come back to us later on, you know, for the new monetary system. Presumably, if America's still strong and still around, it's a little bit like, uh, like uh, you know, Argentina. They can always come back, you know, <laughs> and, and reestablish credit. But, but you, you understand my point. These are solutions. These are not bugs. These are features of, of inflation. And I do think that uh, just as in the, the you know, world, New Deal, World War II era, it started out as a very deflationary era, but it ended as an extraordinary inflationary one. And by the way, a hot economy. All Americans were suddenly getting these huge wage hikes, right? That was another element of the new equality, right? And people, you know, Americans were bidding up for jobs that it tended to increase the, uh, you know, labor capital, you know, ratio of, of national income. So all of this worked toward greater equality. Um, and I think we see the elements of that coming into place. I mean, back then it was new laws to sort of fortify and defend the role of unions. Uh, today we see it with these new, uh, you know, higher minimum wage laws, which I have no doubt some form of them will go into effect, um, along with some form of this new, oh, I talked about social infrastructure, but, you know, uh, some of that. But I, I do think this is a new regime, and I think it's important for investors to 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 understand that in that era from 1940 to, you know, we all think about 1981 to today as being this period of, you know. Uh, uh, decelerating inflation, declining interest rates, uh, less government, deregulation, greater inequality, and a cooler running economy. But in the previous 40 years, we went in the opposite direction on all those things, right? And that's- it, it Is it fair to say that you see us returning back, like re reversing those trends of the past 1984. I mean, you see it in the tea leaves. I mean, you just see it, right? You see the gestation of it right now. And I, I do think that that's where we're moving. I, and I think some, if you look at it really broadly, Adam, you kind of think, yeah, that's probably not all that bad for the country in a sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very different world, uh, but it may not be bad in its overall impact, right? What kind of society we come out with on the other side. I mean, let's face it, you know, the 1950s and 1960s weren't the worst period, you know, of, uh, of American history. Uh, there's a lot to lot happened that actually worked. Uh, and as I often point out, it did a lot to improve uh, the condition of minorities in America. You know, one, one point I often make is that, you know, African-Americans, uh, you know, earnings as a share of white earnings, home ownership as a share of uh, white ownership, rose faster in the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s than any other period in American history. This was a, um, a really great era for a lot of things that worked well. Uh, and we, we sometimes tend to look back on that era, you know, with, um, uh, you know, and, and with a critical eye. I think boomers particularly don't like it because, you know, they weren't allowed to express themselves. Well, they were rejecting <laughs> it, yeah, as they oh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Yeah. Well, well Neil, I, I got to say um, that that's encouraging to hear. Um, you know, there are few people alive, I think, who are as knowledgeable about the conditions of previous generations as you. Uh, and to hear you say, hey, look, you know, it's going to be different and, and the path may not always be painless. But it sounds like you're saying, look, it's not necessarily, you know, we're not we're not devolving into the dark ages here, likely. And well, I, I think yeah, it's important. likely. Yeah. Well, I think it's you important to, to, to reiterate exactly. this just because we have a lot of viewers who, uh, you know, I think can sometimes look at all the challenges that we currently face. They, they look at the debts and, and think of how unsustainable they are. They look at how high inflation may get at points in the future, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they, they project to a, oh, my gosh, the system is going to break down. And it's not just going to be sort of a cyclical turn. It's going to be like like a like a, a real permanent breakage into a, you know, I'm going to use an ex extreme adjective here, but like a dystopian future. And I think it's important to hear from experts like yourself. You're saying, ah, we're going to have some challenges for sure, and it may be different. But right now, on average, it's not looking like you know it's going to turn into the Lord of the Flies world. No, and, and I, I think that is important. You know, look, I, the Lord of the Flies world is, is, I mean, we have seen breaks in history where that has happened. But I, I absolutely don't think that's at all remotely the most likely scenario. I think you, you want to be aware of that. But I think most likely what's going to happen is going to be different. And you hope it's different in a, in a positive way. And I think it's very often the hardest thing for people to do is to broaden their approach, right? Get out of today's ideological, you know, narrow ideological frame and see it from a broader social and cultural point of view with a broader sense of history and say, you know, on balance, you can really see some positives coming out of here, right? And, and even positives about where we are today. Um, the seasons are an interesting way of looking at history. Uh, every season is necessary. Uh, it is not like, like there's some seasons that are just decline. No, some things are getting worse. Some things are getting better. It's the balance between them. Every season is necessary. And frankly, even the fourth turning, when a lot of old institutions are destroyed, that's necessary to rejuvenate us, right? To rejuvenate our institutions, to make them young again so they're able to grow again, right? You need to do occasionally some creative destruction, not just in the private sector, right? But in our public life uh, and start over again and, and, and do something new, something, uh, something big. I think that's one thing that younger generations really miss, thinking big about our future again. Why can't we do that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I do think, um, you know, sort of writ large, um, we are short of inspiration right now as a society. And uh, maybe perhaps having a little bit more of that, uh, you know, would be a welcome thing. Look, I hate to begin to bring the conversation uh, to a close here. Neil, there are so many questions I still want to ask you. I know I'm going to get a ton of additional ones when this video airs. So I hope we can have you back on the program again in the future. Sure. Um, but as we wrap up here, um, I believe that you are uh, one of the so many questions for you. And one of the top ones was, hey, what would Neil have written differently uh, in his book, The Fourth Turning, if you were writing it today? What well, sounds like you're working on maybe a, a, a new version of that? Yes, we're doing a 
a book which is going to be appearing sometime, you know, very late in 2022. You know, I'm I'm trying to finish the draft over the next few months, so I'm you know well well into it, probably a little bit beyond halfway. Um, and uh, that will be out, you know, just you know that'll be yeah, that'll be a pretty visible book. I mean, I know our our publishers it's Simon and Schuster, and you know it'll be out everywhere. And I will let everyone know. Obviously, my my Twitter handle is um, uh, Howitt Generation, so you know people can follow me there. They can follow the work I do on Hedgeye uh, there, and uh, they can keep up with you know when the book is coming out. I there's obviously a lot to update, and and you know note history is prescripted only in its most general way, right? And so a lot that happens, which is individual and problematic and makes you think about contingency and choice and right. I mean, how, you know, uh, nothing is predetermined, uh, nothing is written. <laughs> we always have choices. And I do think it's very interesting, this, this, this fourth turning that we're in, um, I think is definitely recognizable as a fourth turning. I mean, the, the polarization, the division of America into these two halves, the, the complete you know, loss of functionality of central institutions uh, is just sort of obvious in the experimentation with radical alternatives all of a sudden. Um, it, it's interesting that um, I think maybe the one difference, and I'll be talking a little bit about this, is the the slowing down of the life cycle a little bit. You know, uh, uh, young people are a little bit older now when they actually become adults. You now they take all their courses in adulting <laughs> and then they become adults a little <laughs> later. Uh, Gen Xers are now very late in coming to real positions of midlife power. They're still almost invisible in politics, amazingly enough. You know, the oldest Gen Xers are already, uh, you, know, hit, you know, at least by my reckoning, are, are hitting age 60. Uh, where we, you know, we had one 1960 born president, uh, I should say 1961 born president, Barack Obama, but we haven't really seen much from that generation uh, at all. Uh, they seem even in congressional politics, they're not terribly visible. They're not even in the presidential primaries. So they have been slow, even in the corporate C-suite, Gen X has been slow. Uh, uh, boomers still dominate, right? Uh, and uh, the silent generation is still out there. So this slowing down of the life cycle, I do think has slowed the cycle down a little bit. You can see that palpably, which is part of the reason why we see this, this, this fourth turning extending a little bit because you know generations are sort of slower. The life cycle, each phase of life is kind of broadening a little bit, right? And I think that's an interesting adjustment. We'll be talking about that, talking a lot more about specifically what happens during a fourth turning. I think that's the biggest thing that the readers are curious about, right? How do we understand today's events in light of earlier crises? Look very closely at actually what happened in those crises. That's something we really didn't do that much in our earlier books. And I think that's a huge new element. And what can we expect in the 2030s when ultimately we move on into the next first turning, right? Will that be the new golden age, right? After the crisis, you know, typically you get suddenly this sense of rebirth, you know, this new era of peace and prosperity and planning and, and security. And when everyone feels great about the world in the future again, what will that look like? It'll be a millennial run world, Adam. I don't know whether you're, you're ready for that. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> having, having some children that are kind of bumping up against them later, the more in the, the older Gen Z. Uh, I, I've, I've got some, uh, you know, makes me feel good in some ways, make me feel worried in some other ways, but we'll see. Well, they'll, they'll be the coming of age, right? They'll be the young adults in that era. So you, you kind of think about, you think differently even about your own kids, your own parents this way. So, well, Neil, I, I know we're going to have a ton of people that are going to be super interested in that book when it comes out. Uh, I'd love to have you on beforehand to dig more deeply into what we've talked about. But obviously, when the book comes out next year, uh, we'll have you come on so you can let everybody know how to get it then. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, Neil, thank you so much for your time. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Uh, if you'd like to support this channel and see more great speakers like Neil, please, as always, just hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. Two simple steps, but one that really does help this video get out to more viewers. Neil, love to have you back on again soon. So many more questions to get through, but thank you so much for all the insights that you've shared in this amazing discussion today. Great. Thank you, Adam. All right, folks. Oh, God, what a great interview. Well, now is the time of the program where we talk to Wealthions, endorsed financial advisors. Um, I'm here with the lead partners at New Harbor Financial. We're joined today by Mike Preston. Uh, his other partner, John Loder, is off for the day. But Mike, look, I know you're a big fan of uh, Neil's work, The Fourth Turning. Um, I'll let you give your reaction to, uh, to what uh, Neil just talked about, uh, and then we'll jump into what the markets have done since last week. Great. Nice to see you, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for having me back again this week. I love that talk. I, I've been a fan of the fourth turning theory and the book that uh, came out by Strauss and Howe originally in the late 90s. And you know, the, the, the fourth turning theory is widely recognized and followed in the finance industry. And I won't try to re-explain what Neil already explained so eloquently, but it's, it's a theory that really makes sense. I mean, there's other theories that are similar like the uh, chondreative, I believe I'm pronouncing right, wave or, or the K waves or the seasons. But this, this is, in my opinion, in, of many in, on Wall Street and in finance, there's no doubt that we're in a climactic season. There's no doubt that we're in a fourth turning, almost certainly. And that fourth turning probably started in 2008 or so. That's what Neil thinks. Um, and these fourth turnings last about 20 years, plus or minus a little bit. So we're smack dab in deep in the fourth turning and everything that we see around us in terms of the extremes in the, in the markets, in the environment, um, in politics, it's in, you know, in civil, civil tension, everything seems to be coming to a head and we, we are living through pretty unique times. And we, we, we certainly base what we do on math and statistics and valuations, but there's a heavy dose of understanding about where we are in these cycles and in these waves, if you will, that goes into our work as well. So I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I <laughs> just listening to Neil, you know, what I kept hearing in my head was was just this, you know, this is the this is proving the wisdom of risk management. Right. <laughs> Where we're entering a period of disruption. Uh, there's going to be a lot of volatility, you know, as Neil mentioned, um, uh, when you enter a fourth turning, uh, you know, basically all of the leadership that you had that knows how to deal with big existential crises like you, you face in a fourth turning is, is, in his words, too old to serve. Right. So you're sort of stuck with the wrong leaders, which means you can just expect, you know, poor decisions being made through this process, just exacerbating the, the disruption and the volatility. So, you know, we're we're 
you know, Neil said it more eloquently than the new I are going to be able to recap here. But, you know, basically said, look, you know, it, it's going to get bumpy, folks. The ride's going to get really bumpy. And uh, this really underscores, you know, why we bring you guys on uh, and, and encourage folks to, you know, to work with you guys um, because of your intense focus on risk management. Um, and, uh, you know, for folks that haven't seen it yet, uh, we did a really nice video, um, Mike, his partner, John and I, about a month ago on uh, sort of just going through the principles of the, the major vehicles that you can use as an investor uh, to hedge against a market correction. If you haven't seen that video yet, we'll put up a link to it here, uh, but definitely go watch that. Um, because again, everything Neil said, said, you know, prepare for rough times ahead. Um, so uh, Mike, I, I'm sure you have lots of questions from people when they, they reach out to you, you know, to say, hey, uh, you know, given what's coming, you know, what should I be doing? Sounds like you use the the, the fourth turning as a framework. Um, one particular thing that Neil said that I, I just love to get your general reaction to is um, like many of our other guests, you know, who look through different lenses, uh, probably more of a pure financial lens than, than Neil does, because his is much more sort of, you know, generational and historic. Um, but like them, Neil expects inflation to be the dominant trend going ahead. And in his words, it's not a bug of the system, it's a feature. Uh, it's a tool that is being intentionally used by the central planners, you know, largely to allow them to continue borrowing debt and then over time just to be able to keep that debt from exploding. Um, so he sees more and more inflation going ahead. Obviously, there are going to be periods where it gets punctuated by a little, you know, or, or short-lived deflationary plunges. Um, but he's, you know, he's pretty confident we're going to see more inflation. Um, agree and and how are you guys uh, taking that into account into your investment outlook there's no doubt to us we're eventually going to see significant inflation and neil is right that is one of the the least uncomfortable ways out of the problem that we have of this this insane amount of debt and uh, as he said in, in in his talk um i think about a third of that debt is held by foreigners so hey why not have them carry our load too the problem to, to me is that we, we really can't predict the path. Nothing ever happens in a linear fashion. Things are much more uh, fractal, much more random in the real world, particularly in finance. So it's quite likely and possible that we might see something like we expect. First, a deflationary impulse, you know, where the Fed and other central banks lose control and prices actually fall and the value of cash goes up, followed by potentially runaway inflation when central banks really go crazy. I don't think we're going straight into hyperinflation. We may be wrong. And if we are wrong, there's going to be opportunity there too, because we're invested in precious metal miners. We're telling our clients to have a core position in physical gold and silver. Those things will do very well if we go straight into hyperinflation. Also, if we go straight into hyperinflation, the stock market will crash. And history shows that if we go from stable inflation to hyperinflation, or deflation, either you know, um, a change in the positive way or the negative way, we'll get a stock market drop first, which will give us the opportunity to deploy some cash into stock market assets. So my best guess though, is that we see deflation and falling prices first, which means cash will be important. Long-term, uh, absolutely, inflation is, gonna, is almost certainly going to be what happens, maybe two years plus down the road. Okay, well, you know, turning to what the markets have done over the past week, um, they they still seem to be, I would say, sort of shrugging off uh, the concerns of inflation. You know, the Fed is out there still saying transitory. 
They're just saying it's going to be transitory for longer than we thought it was going to be. They're totally resistant using the word persistent uh, at this point in time. Um, in fact, just today, uh, the Fed came out and uh, you know basically sort of reaffirmed its plans to taper uh, either in November or in December, um, and still plans to you know sort of taper through the middle of next year. Um, again, market you know doesn't seem to be reacting too much to that yet. Uh, the one thing that has popped really recently were the precious metals. And you mentioned that that's a core position in the New Harbor portfolio. Uh, they, after weeks of, of basically having you know, a lot of sluggishness, um, they jumped up pretty, pretty substantially today. Um, can you give a quick recap of what's going on there? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the metals and maybe some other things in the market as well. Um, gold and silver, they've been on, on just a long correction off the August 2020 high and it's been it's been somewhat interminable of a wait you know maybe uh, a year and a few months all while the stock market is charged higher and, and cryptos have now recently rebounded to almost retake their old high so they're almost going through to new highs meanwhile the gold and silver markets and the and the miners have just been in a slow kind of drip drip lower move for for about 16 months it's been interminable but we saw a swing low in miners last week and, and, and what we think is a swing low in gold and silver that's been trying to base out for a while. And we, we've seen a couple really, really strong days. For instance, one of our core positions is up about uh, 10, a little over 10% in just a couple of days. And if you look at the gold and silver miners index like XAU or one of the big ETFs that tracks that index, it's up 10% plus in a few days. And so that's the kind of moves you can happen when, or that can happen when things get stretched. It has been difficult to hold on to positions in that sector. We, we do own some out of the money puts that are there just as, as fire insurance in, in case we had some kind of crash in the whole market or in the commodity complex. It's made it a little bit easier to hold on to, but the slow drip, drip, drip lower has made it difficult for some. And it seems like we're getting a turn. And so we do have a core position in the mining complex. We think it's one of the best values in the market today. These, these companies have high single digit, low double digit price earnings ratio. The, the books, the balance sheets are much cleaner than they were. A lot of bad debt has been written off and a lot of over, um, over investment has been written off. And these, these uh, company uh, leaders are much more disciplined about how they do business. So one of the, one of the better opportunities in the market today a couple other things we're looking at besides gold, silver, and the miners is anything really anything real or anything physical, like commodities or anything that's in the ground or grows on the ground is probably going to do well in the next 10 years as you know we eventually run into hyperinflation and it becomes more and more known that this money printing regime has an end. So we've been looking really close at base metals, basic materials, um, and other commodities. And we, we were interested in some of the agricultural commodities and, and so forth. But more recently, there's been a lot of focus on uranium and those types of plays. We've done some research and we actually did take a small position in that space in, in uranium, uh, in mining. Not a, not a really big position and it's hedged like usual with us in this very extended market with a call option, but we're starting to nibble in that space. And so this is a, a mining company that, um, you know, that mines uranium. So um, there's a lot of other opportunities too. We'd really like to see a bigger pullback in the energy space. 
natural gas and crude has been on a tear as, as have the, the associated companies. But, um, you know, particularly as the S&P pulls back, which we think it eventually will, there's going to be better opportunities in those areas, uh, companies that make real things. Okay, great. And, and interesting to hear that you guys have indeed taken on a new position in the portfolio since we talked last week and you're nodding mm -hmm. here. That was the uranium company. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, for folks watching, I want to give um, just a quick machine gun uh, guidance on a couple of resources for you all based upon what Mike just said. Um, so we've talked on this program um, a number of times in the past months about how uh, in some ways sort of almost historically undervalued the precious metals mining companies are relative to the general markets. Um, a very excellent and recent deep dive discussion uh, that we did on this channel uh, recently, uh, I did uh, last week with gold, silver, precious metal analyst, Jeff Clark. If you haven't watched that yet and you really wanna understand exactly why and how undervalued, why they're undervalued and how deeply they're undervalued in terms of the precious metals mining stocks, go check out that video. Um, you know, Mike just mentioned that he, uh, New Harbor there just uh, bought a new stake in a uranium play. Uh, the uranium market um, is, is really, um, you know, really come to life um, after many, many years in the doldrums uh, over the past couple of months, uh, in no small part because uh, Sprott, uh, a large Canadian firm, uh, has launched a new physical uranium trust where they're buying millions of pounds worth of, of uranium. Um, I did an interview about two weeks ago with John Champaglia, who is the CEO of Sprott, uh, uh, Sprott Asset Management, which is in charge of, of putting that trust together. Really fascinating discussion on what's driving the uranium market. Definitely go check that out if you think you might want to invest in uranium as well. Uh, and then last, Mike talked about how energy plays right now have suddenly gotten you know, very pricey. Uh, as the base commodities have, have shot the moon, um, given these energy price spikes and energy shortages that we're seeing around the world. I just released a video yesterday with energy expert Art Berman, like really diving deeply into what's causing that. Um, it's, a re it's a fascinating, but more importantly, I think it's a really important uh, topic for people to get educated on, um, both given what's going on in the world right now around energy, but the knock-on effects that what happens in the energy markets have in the economic and financial markets. So um, anyways, resources for you to check out if you are interested in learning more about those areas. All right, Mike, uh, we're going to wrap things up here. I will let you have the last word before I tie things up in a bow. Uh, but as you look forward to the next week, uh, what are the things you'll be paying most attention to? Well, here's my last thoughts. The S&P is 4% off its highs, you know, barely off its highs. Um, it, it, there's not a lot of concern out there. You know, there's just a lot of complacency. And we have been pounding the table, telling people to get safer reduce exposure to equities. A couple of weeks ago, we were on, I think it was two weeks ago with, with David Hunter on your program, Adam, and he's predicting a spike move higher and then a big drop. That may happen. I have no way of knowing. But the, but here's the, the, the end of the story. No matter what happens, whether we go higher first or, or we don't, his prediction and our prediction is the same, that we're going to be a lot lower than here in the months and years ahead. So again, we would strongly suggest that people reduce risk get equities down to maybe 30% or less, make sure you've got some gold and silver. There's still an, an excellent time to buy here. 4% off the high. There's lots and lots of warning signs. The internals of the market are not good. Uh, leadership is bad. Key, you know, key indexes have topped months ago, transports for instance. Um, and even the Dow was trading at where it was back in, in, in May or so. So yeah, we're within a hair's breadth of the high, but 
nobody's really paying attention. So uh, we're going to continue to be very defensive. And over the next week, we're going to just be looking for, for anything different. There's not much different yet. We hope to see a follow through in, in miners and in gold and silver. I wouldn't be surprised to see those shoot higher rapidly when they start moving because gold in particular was in this giant uh, bullish triangle uh, consolidation that we've been talking about on a few different programs. And we took a couple drops out of that triangle over the last couple of months and each one of them was reversed. That oftentimes leads to a kind of a springboard or a boomerang effect in the other direction. Nobody's expecting it. Nobody's talking about it. So that could happen and it would be nice to see. So uh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes open and uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. All right. Well, well said, Mike. And um, I'm glad you mentioned David Hunter there. Just for folks who haven't seen that interview, David does have some very, very bold predictions that the crash or correction or crash that Mike was referring to in David's estimation, that might be as high as 80 percent. I mean, that's almost like a nuclear crash for the markets. Um, but in David's forecasting, he expects the highs that the market is at right now or, or will be at if we have a, a, you know, a brief final blow off top here. Uh, he said he believes those highs will stand likely for a decade, if not decades, uh, very similar to what happened uh, with the, the uh, Japan stock market, which hit its highs back in the 1980s, and we're still like a third below them. Um, he, he sees the current levels of, of overvaluation in the general market being that high. Um, all right, well, as we wrap up here, uh, if you're a newer viewer and don't know this, um, you know, we highly recommend, given all the uncertainty that I talked about with Neil, that Mike reiterated here, that this is an error that you want to work with uh, under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who can create a personalized um, investing strategy for you, taking all these risks into account. And if you already have a good advisor who does that, excellent, stick with them. But if you don't, Mike and his partner, John, and the team at New Harbor Financial, uh, they offer free consultations uh, to folks who just want to reach out to them. They'll sit down with you. They'll take a, a look at you know what you have, what your goals are, and they'll give you their, their advice for free. Um, if you want to learn more about how to do that, just stick around at the end of the video. Um, uh, that's coming up in about 30 seconds. We tell you how to set one of those conversations up and literally it takes like five seconds to do so. Um, if you want to uh, see who's coming on this channel as another guest um, uh, like Neil, um, follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. And that's also a great place to suggest to me who else you'd like to see on the program. And I see more and more people are beginning to do that, which I really appreciate. I listen to every suggestion and a number of the guests that we brought on the program here, like Neil, like I said earlier, he was the, he's been the number one requested guest that we've had over the past month. Um, I'll do my best to go out and get that person. Uh, last, if you like this channel, if you enjoy these deep dive discussions with big experts like Neil, do us a favor, help support this channel by liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button as well as the little bell icon right next to it if you haven't done those steps already. Very small steps, but make a big deal in helping us out. And with that, whatever the markets do from here, uh, we'll be tracking it on this channel. Mike, thanks so much for joining me this week and everybody else, thanks for watching. Thank you, Adam. I had a, had a good time. Thank you. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. 
and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.